Hey, our latest episode on soil carbon and regenerative agriculture could never have fit everything that needs to be said on the topic. So we are leaning on a couple of other podcasts that we think you'll love. First up, we're running an episode from a show called Hot Farm. It's from our friends at the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Hot Farm is all about what farmers are doing, or could be doing, to take on the climate emergency. In this episode, you'll hear about a novel grain farmers are starting to grow that could be part of the solution, if only people would eat it. But first, a lot of things need to happen for that to fall into place. This is Hot Farm. My friend Tor Oshner is a grain farmer in central New York. He grows a couple kinds of wheat, plus corn, rye, buckwheat. He also cones a mill, which grinds his crops into flour. All-purpose flour, whole wheat bread flour, corn flour, and our polenta, which I know you like. I do like the polenta. Also, the sourdough bread and croissants made with Tor's flour at the bakery he also co-owns. So this whole circle got started from the farm to the mill to the bakery to the community. And it started in this indirect way a few years after Tor graduated from ag school, all inspired by a grain Tor never even grew. I didn't know you were a conventional farmer at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So Cornell in the 80s, there was nothing to do with organic agriculture. You know, my weed control course was all about spraying. Spraying pesticides, lots of them. And after Tor graduated, that's how he farmed. But one day, he was out spraying his corn. And I'm going along in my Kevlar suit with my mask on, blasting this stuff. And I look over and I see the wellhead to the house I was living in right next to the field. And this light went off in my head that was like, you know, this is not, this is not right. Uh, there has to be a different way to do this. A different way to farm, one without all those chemicals. Not long after, Tor was flipping through a magazine. And there's this article about Kernza. Kernza, a grain scientists and farmers have been developing now for around 20 years. Kernza is a relative of wheat, which people have been cultivating for 10,000 years. Kernza is just beginning its agricultural journey. It was even newer when Tor read about it. And I thought, oh my God, if we could do that, this is, this is incredible. It was exciting. For one thing, Kernza wouldn't need all those chemicals. Fast forward to years later, I've got a 1,300-acre organic grain farm. And a researcher up at Cornell comes up to me and says, oh, we want to do a trial with Kernza in New York. And would you be one of the three farms that grows Kernza? And for me, you know, I couldn't, I honestly couldn't believe it. I was like, Kernza, you serious? Kernza? Like, that is the plant that got me where I am today. From the Food and Environment Reporting Network, I'm Eve Abrams. Welcome to Hot Farm, a podcast about farmers and food, your food, and what the people who grow that food are doing, or could be doing, to take on the climate emergency. In our first two episodes, we talked about farmers changing their practices, how they farm. Now let's talk about what they farm. 
Kernza has a way of inspiring people, like Tor, to think big. On one hand, Kernza is just a grain, one most of us are hearing about for the first time right now. But Kernza also represents a total rethink of what farming could be and do in the age of climate change. This is episode three, in which producer Rachel Young asks, is Kernza the grain of the future? Hello, Rachel. Hi, Eve. So my friend Tor is obviously enthusiastic about Kernza. It changed him as a farmer. But you've been telling me he's not alone. That's right. For this story, I talked to a lot of people in my home state of Minnesota who are trying to make Kernza happen. And many of them share Tor's unbridled enthusiasm about the ways this grain could revolutionize farming. Revolutionize? Yes, that's the word a lot of them are using. But to understand why it's so revolutionary, I want to zoom out a little first and talk about the way that we farm grains now. Zoom away. Well, for starters, we grow a lot of grains. Crops like wheat, rice, and corn. Grains provide about half of the calories we humans consume. We also feed a lot of grains to livestock, and we use some for biodiesel. And so grains make up a whopping 70% of the world's croplands, which turns out is pretty bad for Earth's soil, water, and air. The way we farm those crops results in soil erosion, chemical runoff, and carbon emissions, which spells bad news for the future of eating. Southern Madagascar is on the brink of the first climate change famine. In Honduras, where agriculture sustains many people, long-term drought caused in part by climate change is forcing many to leave. The lack of rain is making Minnesota farmers worried. Crops are starting to dry up and stress is growing. So this is the breeding nursery. So those are all individual plants. To learn about what Kernza is and where it comes from, I hopped in the car with Dr. Don Wise for a little field trip through the University of Minnesota's research fields. Don is a professor of agronomy and plant genetics, and full disclosure, his research receives funding from the Walton Family Foundation, which also supported this podcast. Don's driving with one hand on the wheel, all casual. He's got wire rim glasses and white hair long enough to pull back into a ponytail. This is a breeding nursery, so if it was a field, it would be all covered, right? It's sunny, warm for October. We're off-roading in Don's sedan, up and down the grassy paths between sprawling fields lined with crops scientists are studying. Hybrid corn came out of this area here. Soybeans came out of this area up here. Don leads a research program at the university called the Forever Green Initiative, which is all about improving the crops farmers grow. Usually when scientists talk about improving crops, they mean breeding versions that are more productive. So more corn, more soy, more... Wheat, barley, they all came from this place. But Don and Forever Green aren't just focused on growing higher-yielding versions of the crops that already dominate the world's farmland. They're developing 16 new or improved crops designed to thrive in a world with an unpredictable climate. Don hits the brakes and points out the window to introduce me to them. All right, so this is camelina. This is silphium. Winter barley. The other big one is uh, winter pea. These crops are meant to check a few boxes, Don says. They can survive in a changing climate, they're good for the soil, and farmers can make money growing them. 
And one of these crops is the reason I'm visiting Don today. These are different breeding lines of Kernza. Kernza, the grain Tor was so excited about. On first glance, you might not think Kernza packs much potential. I mean, it doesn't exactly look that impressive. It looks a lot like if you're driving down the roadside and you see the grass along the side of your road. That's Lee DeHaan. Not a whole lot like a grain crop. Another Kernza scientist. Lee first laid eyes on an early iteration of Kernza in the 90s. He was a grad student at the University of Minnesota at the time. Don Wise was his advisor. And I think at the first time I saw the plant, I gotta admit that at the moment, I thought, oh boy, that's, that's got a long ways to go. <laughs> Today, Lee's one of the world's top experts in Kernza development. I'm the leader of the Kernza domestication program at the Land Institute. The Land Institute is a nonprofit ag research organization based in Salina, Kansas, and they're sort of like Kernza mission control. They partner with other labs, like the University of Minnesota's Forever Green Initiative, to move Kernza development forward. The Land Institute came up with the name Kernza, by the way, and trademarked it. And the reason it's so exciting to scientists like Lee and Don? Well, it's the first perennial grain in the world. A perennial grain. So all of those grain crops I mentioned earlier, like corn and wheat, those are annual crops. Their roots are in the ground on a short-term basis, till harvest. And then they're out of there. Annuals have to be cultivated every year, which does a lot of damage to the soil. Kernza isn't like that. You plant it, harvest it, winter comes, the ground freezes, spring rolls around, and it grows back for three or four years. And because Kernza stays kicking all year long, it develops these super dense roots that reach deep into the earth. We're talking like 10 feet deep. Plants with deep perennial roots are super resilient to extreme climate events, Don tells me. And that's an important quality for our food crops to have. Because here in Minnesota, we are in an area of the United States where there's going to be dramatic shifts in our climate. In Minnesota last year, like a lot of the country, we experienced extreme drought conditions between June and September. Most of the forever green crops needed extra water to make it through the dry season, with one exception. Kernza. So it was a good example of that difference about deep root compared to the shallow roots of this of the summer annual crops. So Kernza's deep perennial roots give it this superpower of climate resilience. And that's just superpower number one. Those roots have other big benefits. Superpower number two, just by being there, they make the soil stronger. The roots of perennial grains form soil in a way that the annual species just don't. And that's really exciting to soil scientists like Tim Cruz. I'm the chief scientist and a soil ecologist here at the Land Institute. In the last two episodes, we heard about how cover crops hold the soil together and pull carbon out of the air and store it in the earth. Tim says that Kernza, with its big old perennial roots, can do those things on, like, steroids. Kernza also helps repair degraded ecosystems. And that's superpower number three. Scientists call it ecosystem services. For example, 
annual crops that rely on roots that appear and disappear, they leak about half of the fertilizer that's put on every year. When wheat's little annual roots can't drink up all the fertilizer they're fed, that fertilizer ends up running off and polluting our drinking water. Kernza's perennial roots can slurp up almost twice as much fertilizer as wheat's, which means way less of it runs off as pollution. It's remarkable. And it's those voracious roots, this huge root mass is able to just take up nutrients. In fact, Kernza's roots are so voracious that a few years ago, the Forever Green Initiative tried planting Kernza near fertilizer-contaminated wells in Minnesota. And now, that water is drinkable again. So Kernza comes with these environmental benefits, and it can produce a grain we can eat. Not bad for a little wheatgrass, if you ask the Land Institute. And that's actually their whole angle. The Land Institute thinks that eventually, replacing the world's annual crops with their perennial cousins, like swapping out annual wheat for Kernza, is the key to feeding both people and soil in a warmer world. Farming this way, using methods that are actually good for the soil, has a name. Regenerative agriculture. Farming regeneratively is one way agriculture can remedy some of the problems of climate change, problems modern agriculture helped create. A lot, a lot of the soil's carbon was lost when we converted natural ecosystems into annual ecosystems. Minnesota's natural ecosystems are big woods, wetlands, pine forests, and prairies. That landscape started to change on a big scale about 150 years ago, when homesteaders took this land and started plowing it into big annual fields, depleting the soil's carbon in the process. In order to recapture that carbon, we return the ecosystem to being diverse and perennial. And it's those roots will feed microbes, they feed all these processes that sequester carbon and draw it out of the atmosphere. Compared to the crops we grow now, perennials like Kernza are a lot more like the plants that originally grew on Midwestern grasslands. Tim gestures to the view outside his window. When we walk outside here and we look at a tilled field, you go, that field wants to be a prairie. In other words, if you leave it alone for enough time, it will become a prairie. Like, it'll just, that will happen still. And it's not just the Midwest. Remember, 70% of the world's croplands are planted with annual grains, often in places where those grains were never meant to grow. Kearns is not the only perennial on the soil-saving menu of the future. Scientists are also developing perennial rice, hybrid wheat, and a whole bunch of other crops, which will disrupt the soil less than the varieties we currently grow. If developing crops is in a race against climate change, then Kernza is like a promising rookie on the track team. But can a rookie crop really move from obscurity to world domination? Don Wise tells me it's not only possible, it's actually happened before— Today, it's Kernza, but in the early 20th century... It was soybean. That's right. Soy, which came from Asia, didn't get big in the U.S. until after World War II. When wartime rationing ended, demand for meat skyrocketed, and farmers needed a cheaper feed source for their livestock. So there was this huge switch, increasing the, the demand for soy. 
Only problem was, soy was producing pretty teeny yields at the time. So scientists started breeding higher-yielding soy crops. Today's soy is the second most widely grown crop in the U.S., used for animal feed, people food, and biodiesel. But getting here took 80 years. So increasing yields over time takes time. That's the thing. We don't have a lot of time. And Kernza faces other hurdles besides growing into a more robust version of itself. Right now, there's virtually no consumer demand for Kernza and few businesses to support it. You need to think about the supply chain. Who's going to buy your grains? Who's going to process your grains? Sylvia Secchi is a natural resource economist at the University of Iowa. She says the future of perennial grains is going to depend on more than breakthroughs in plant breeding. You can't just change the crops, right? This is a whole system that we need to uh, modify. But getting perennial grains like Kernza to compete with the annuals we grow now is not going to be easy because the U.S. Farm Bill pumps money into annuals like corn and soy. Sylvia saw the impact of those subsidies in 2019 when her research brought her to Iowa's cornfields, where she interviewed farmers about their climate mitigation strategies. And we asked them, what is the main mechanism that you use um, to protect yourself against climate change? And what they said is subsidized crop insurance, because they know that if their crop fails, they will get paid. That's why they grow corn after corn, even though it creates problems. It's because they know that that system is bulletproof. It's protected by the federal government. And that protection is getting increasingly expensive. In the last 25 years, federal crop insurance payouts to farmers who lost crops due to drought and flooding more than tripled. In 2020 alone, Federal insurance subsidies for extreme weather events surpassed $4 billion. So until the government stops massively incentivizing farmers to grow annuals, corn, soy, and wheat aren't going anywhere. A lot needs to change at the policy level, Sylvia says, before a perennial revolution will be even remotely possible. What we need for Kansas to find its place is changes to our farm policy. For example, if you have crop insurance subsidies for corn and beans, right, you should have them for Kernza. Forever Green director Don Wise agrees. For Kernza to stand up to the heavy hitters, it'll need federal support. So the people who make decisions about ag policy have a choice to make. Whether or not it's worthy of the investment in these new crops that give you this new set of outcomes protection of the agricultural landscape, uh, the enhancement of water quality, and creating new economic opportunities for rural communities. But with federal support or not, in order to see any of these benefits on a meaningful scale, we need to be growing a lot more Kernza than we are today. There are only about 4,000 acres of Kernza growing worldwide. There are individual farms that are bigger than that. But the Land Institute's Lee DeHaan says this is just the beginning. We have to have something that can be productive enough to begin to substitute for some of our staple grains. We're talking... Hundreds of thousands to to millions of acres. Okay, so it's a long road ahead. But in 2020, the Land Institute received a $10 million grant from the USDA to start scaling Kernza up. 
That grant money has got people building out a supply chain by experimenting with Kernza. Farmers farming it, millers milling it, and bakers baking it for eaters to eat. And this rollout plan, it's designed to grow gradually. We're really concerned about ensuring that there is a supply chain for years and years to come. Tessa Peters is the Land Institute's Crop Stewardship Director. She's like a matchmaker between researchers, farmers, processors, and food producers. Tessa hears from lots of farmers, all of them excited about a profitable way to farm regeneratively. You know, I don't think there's a farmer in the world who wants to kill their soil. There are only about 60 Kernza growers in the whole U.S., and most of them are in Minnesota. Minnesota is something of an incubator for this fledgling Kernza supply chain. So let's see what building that supply chain looks like, starting on the farm. Now this is the stuff we're going to be planting this in that field right out here. Meet Carmen Fernholtz. He's been farming small grains, corn, and soybeans organically in western Minnesota for almost 50 years. He added Kernza to his crop roster thanks to a buddy of his at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Don Wise. Yeah, that Don Wise, director of the Forever Green Initiative. Don and Carmen go way back, and in 2011, Forever Green asked Carmen to help out with their Kernza research to figure out how Kernza actually grows in practice. I said, for sure, give me some seed, I'll plant it. That first year, around harvest time, Carmen realized he didn't actually know what to do with the crop he'd grown. So he gave Don a call. Don says, well, I think you should try and harvest that. And I said, well, is there any special way to harvest it? He says, you're a farmer. You can figure it out. (laughs) You can probably hear in Carmen's voice that this was a real building the plane as you're flying it situation. But he kept at it, and his Kernza field grew. Right now, we have about 80 acres of Kernza. When I visited Carmen's farm last August, he'd just completed his 10th Kernza harvest. Kernza still isn't growing at a size where it's a viable replacement for wheat. But Carmen's on-farm trial and error is getting it to that point. Carmen brought me out to his barn and opened up this big white plastic bag, like big enough that I could fit inside. He reached in, grabbed a fistful of Kernza kernels, and let them filter through his fingers. Kernza still doesn't mature to uniform sizes. Some kernels are bigger than others. But... If you look at that kernel... Carmen points to one of the kernels in his palm, a little bigger than a grain of rice. That's starting to approach the size of a wheat kernel. And when I started in 2011... He points to another kernel, this one much smaller than most of the others. That might have been the biggest kernel I had. So you look at that comparison. Yeah, it looks so tiny compared to that one. It's like half the size. Exactly. And that's the work that they've been able to do now. Wow. In this, this whole selective process. That you look at. The week I visited, Carmen had just loaded 25,000 pounds of Kernza into a semi bound for a processing plant in North Dakota. There are just a couple of facilities in the upper Midwest that can turn field-fresh Kernza into something we can eat. And that's our next stop in the Kernza supply chain. We're heading to a grain processor just south of Minneapolis, Perennial Pantry. Perennial Pantry is a modest little grain cleaning startup tucked into an office park right off the highway. When Kernza arrives here from farms, it's dropped off in the warehouse's back room, usually in big plastic bags like the one in Carmen's barn. 
raw grain comes in, and oftentimes it has to go to each machine more than once, and eventually comes through to fully clean grain. Christopher Abbott steers the ship around here. He's the president of Perennial Pantry. He says the Kernza they get looks really different depending on how and where it was grown and even what method the farmer used to harvest it. For Kernza, maybe 60% of what shows up is Kernza, and the rest is chaff and stalks and stuff that came out of the field. And so we need to sort through that and say, this is good Kernza, this is other stuff. In order to process Kernza of all shapes and sizes, which keeps changing with every scientific tweak, the perennial pantry team Frankenstein's machinery together. We sort of build it, run it until it breaks, and then say, okay, let's build a new one. Christopher and his team take apart and put back together these machines to best suit whatever type of Kernza they're working with. Puny Kernza, beefy Kernza, this year's Kernza, next year's Kernza, Kernza with a bunch of undesirable crud mixed in. But figuring out how to clean Kernza isn't the only challenge Perennial Pantry's troubleshooting. They're also figuring out how to cook with this stuff. So once the Kernza's been filtered, cleaned, and milled into flour, it gets hoisted via 28-gallon Tupperware tubs through a door, transporting it from the warehouse... It smells pretty good in here. There's a bun in the oven. ...to the test kitchen. Welcome to the next stop on the supply chain, by the way. This is where Kernza becomes food. Perennial Pantry is experimenting with Kernza flour and whole grains and all kinds of recipes for grain salads, pancake mixes, malt liquor, and baked goods. We still don't know what's really going to work for Kernza. Is it Kernza cereal is really what's going to take off and and make Kernza well-known? Or is it crackers? Or is it brownie mixes? Or is it... who knows? Today's Kernza flour is light and fluffy, more like a cake flour than all-purpose. To encourage Kernza's progress on its quest to become the grain of the future, the test kitchen measures Kernza-baked goods against those made with the grain of the now, wheat. So today, Kernza flour is getting baked into dinner rolls and measured against a control group of wheat buns. That control group is coming out of the oven right now. From here, they start measuring. How high do they rise? How dense are they? Those measurements actually help plant geneticists back at the Land Institute, who are breeding Kernza into something that behaves a lot more like whole wheat. Because if casual bakers like yours truly are ever going to add Kernza flour to our grocery lists... It's got to be relatively easy or relatively straightforward to swap in Kernza for wheat. It also has to taste good. How does it taste? Oh, Kernza is delicious. There's like brown sugar notes, butterscotch. Admittedly, these were Kerns evangelists. It provides something unique. It's got some nutty notes, but familiar? Almond extract. It's got a lot of depth. Kerns' functioning, if tiny, supply chain means national brands are starting to pay attention. General Mills introduced a limited-run Kernza cereal, Patagonia Provisions is brewing a Kernza beer, and Whole Foods even named Kernza one of its top 10 food trends for 2022. It's a start. And not just for Kernza. In fact, says Forever Green's Don Wise, it's not really about any of these grains at all. It's about what those grains can do. And Christopher Abbott of Perennial Pantry says... It's about a much bigger change. If you're reimagining the whole system from the genetics, then it's an opportunity to reimagine the whole system all the way through to the end consumer. 
What a perennial grain like Kernza does is offer us a chance to look at what's not working and change course from field to fork. It's a radical, long-term vision. Next time on Hot Farm, there's yet another radical idea out there. Not just about how we farm, or what we farm, but where we farm. So I wouldn't call it the next California. I would say, where's our next garden? California, South Texas, Florida, they're our current garden. Where are we going to expand our garden? It's going to take a $100 million investment from whatever corporation wants to come in here and put it. It's like, if you build it, they will come. Just like the field of dreams. This episode was reported and produced by Rachel Young and edited by me, Eve Abrams, with additional editing help from Allison McAdam. Hot Farm was conceived by me with the Food and Environment Reporting Network. A huge thanks to Fern Editor-in-Chief Sam Fromartz, Executive Editor Brent Cunningham, Contributing Editor Elizabeth Reut, and Staff Writer Teresa Cotzerillis. Thanks also to Nick Jordan, Tammy Kimbler, and Claire Kellaway. Greg Schatz composed Hot Farms music and performed it, along with Paul Chemnitz and Tony Nazaro, recorded at the House of a Thousand Hertz. Engineering by Andrew Gilcrest. Funding for this podcast was provided in part by the Walton Family Foundation. If you're enjoying listening to Hot Farm, give us a rating, write a review. It helps others find the show. And thanks so much for listening. Find more episodes of Hot Farm wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with a journey into the soil. So stay safe. It's a jungle out there.